pack the sunscreen, Bibi said, coming out of the bedroom, running, rubbing her eyes. Why? Are you going to give orders the whole time? You might be able to go outside in the mountains because it's cooler, but there'll be UV rays to think about. Maybe there'll be trees, but we'll still be in danger from dappling. Pack it. It's toxic. Toxicity takes years. Sorrel shrugged and added the sunscreen to the pile. Two sports, two cups. What's that pile for, mother asked. Things to trade, Sorrel said. We need to carry as little as possible. We'll have the plaque if it comes to that. The plaque is our computer. I'm not giving up the plaque, Sorrel said. She glanced at her mother, the skin loosening at her neck and hands, her face freckled and marked by sun damage from before the convergence. Hi everyone, welcome to Like A Real Book Club, a podcast from Rebel Women Lit. I'm Jorraine and today I'm talking with Diana McCauley about her latest sci-fi novel, Daylight Come. So for those of you who don't know, Daylight Come comes out September 24th, which if I do this right should be today when it's released. It's about a fictional Caribbean island where we've reached a point of no return with climate change and what that looks like. And like the best fictional books, it doesn't feel fictional at all. It's quite eerie, tense and terrifying. And if you don't have a copy just yet, you can always get it at rebelwomenlit.com in stores. We The pandemic has slowed down a lot of our shipping globally, but we're still shipping to many countries, including the US, UK, Canada, and across the Caribbean. So you definitely get your copy of Daylight Come there. And don't worry, Christine and Ashley will be joining me next week for our next episode. So now back to the interview. Great. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Rebel Women Lit. Today, we have an exciting author, and she's Jamaican, and she writes what is now being called climate fiction, which is (laughs) cli-fi, which is a variation of sci-fi that we're seeing a lot of, and I expect we'll be seeing a lot more of it as time goes by. And we have Diana McCauley here with us, and I'm pretty excited to talk to her. This is actually... This first time we're talking in detail, um, even though you've been on my TV as an activist and on a, on my bookshelves as an author. So I'm pretty excited to have you here with me. Thank you, Jereen. That's nice. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Uh, Diana, could you just introduce yourself for those who don't know? I think everyone in Jamaica should be familiar with you to some extent. Um, but for everyone who doesn't know, could you introduce who you are and how you how you became a writer, how you decided to get into this world of literature and publishing. Okay, so as you said, I'm Jamaican. I was born here, spent all of my life here except for two years away at school. And writing was my first ambition. Um, and I it came about, I think, because of reading a book that really moved me. In fact, moved me to tears. And I I wanted to do that. I wanted to write stories that would move other people, people I'd never met, weren't in the same room with me, weren't even in the same country with me, to move them to tears as well. So I was 13 years old and I started keeping a journal and I started writing really bad poetry and not quite as bad stories, but also quite bad. So it's my oldest ambition to be a writer. Um, I, but most of my life, and I've written all my life, but only relatively recently for publication. So my first book, um, Dog Heart, is 10 years old. And that was really the first time I 
finished a novel. So not just writing pieces of it and, you know, getting sick of it and putting it one side or sending in something out and get, getting rejected one time and saying, oh, I, you know, it's no good. So Dogheart was the first time I really went right through to the end, revised, sent it out, got, re got rejected, wrote it again and so forth. So that's that's a writing story in, in, a, in a nutshell. And the other sort of side of my life is I've been an environmental activist since about 1990 when I realized that places in Jamaica that I loved, you know, had, had been to when I was a child, specifically this Palisados Strip, which is now behind those stones, you know, had, were being in some ways destroyed, you know, in the case of Palisados, there was a lot of garbage. And I don't mean litter, I mean truckloads of garbage um, that people had driven up onto the beach and dumped off there. And, it really bothered me and I thought something should be done about it. I didn't know anything about the environment, but I'm a reader. So I started reading and I learned more and the more I learned, the more concerned I became. And to cut that long story short, eventually formed the Jamaica Environment Trust and spent almost the last 30 years there as in various roles, you know, volunteer, president, then um, full-time CEO, and now I'm the board chair. As you say, being an environmental activist, because it seemed to me but there were not enough voices raised in concern about, you know, the way we were treating our forests, the mountains, the rivers, the sea, you know, the, all the garbage that was everywhere, the air pollution that is still with us. And I decided that it was just that people didn't know. And my job was to tell them. And once I told them, they did say, oh, of course, you're absolutely right. Well, it didn't quite go like that, but still it kind of took my life over and that's what I spent the last 30 years doing and eventually decided about writing that, you know, you know, you have this, well, many people have this fantasy that one day they're going to have enough time to write and they see themselves in a little cabin in the woods and, you know, and there's like a fire and, <laughs> and a dog in the corner and, dog <laughs> and perfect internet though. You know, very fast Wi-Fi, even though we're in the wilderness. And that's what that's when we're going to write these things that we want to write. And I, it just came to me that actually that was never going to happen. And I had to carve out the time to write around my work day. And I started getting up really early. And that's how I've written five books, getting up early in the morning, writing for sometimes only 20 minutes and sometimes two hours on a good day. And eventually, even if it's slow, your books will get finished that way. Yeah, five books in 10 years is quite a lot, though. Yes, it is a lot. It, it's going to bother me if I don't ask, what was the book that made you cry? What was that book? Mm -hmm. Black Beauty. Oh, nice. Yeah, because I loved, I loved animals as a youngster. And, you know, it's about horses and there's a, one of the horses in it dies. And I just cried. Yeah, I read that when I was young. And I remember crying as well. And I thought it was very unfair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about your latest book, Daylight Come. Tell us about it and how you came up with this story. Maybe about three summers ago, when it was a, we were having a, there was a heat wave in the Middle East. And I saw a newspaper story about people who were outside building um, building high-rise buildings and they had fallen from the scaffolding and some had died and some were just badly injured and I started thinking about that I started thinking what would happen if it was so hot that you couldn't go outside to work in the day and of course we live in the tropics so you know that it, it does get very hot even without the, the problems of the climate crisis 
And I was away when I saw this, no this newspaper story. And when I came home, somehow it stayed with me, you know? When I came home, I started noticing all the people who worked outside. So I'd be driving in my car and I'd, and I'd see people doing road construction. You know, we've, we've gone through a period of lots of road construction all over Jamaica over the last couple of years. And I see people in, in working on farms and I'd even see people and policemen and security guards and people walking with their children to school and, you know, markets which are open air. And I just started thinking about what happened if the world turned around and you had to work at night and sleep in the day because it was just too hot to go outside in the day. And that just took hold of my imagination. And over a period of time, I started, you know, creating this world in my head and these characters. And I imagined a 14-year-old girl who just couldn't sleep. And so for her, for her survival, really, she has to leave um, the flatland and see if by going up into the hills, she can maybe find some cooler temperatures. And that's basically the story in, in Daylight Come of a 14-year-old girl convinces her mother to leave the capital city. It's a fictional island set in 2084 and go and see if they can find a place where they can sleep at night. Just an ordinary thing like that. Sleep at night, go outside in the day, cooler, maybe live in a more sort of normal kind of, you know, climate. And hopefully she hopes to meet um, young people her own age because there's hardly ever in, hardly any in-person contact between people, except if you have an in-person job. It's kind of like COVID really in a way, although it was written, you know, it's been in progress long before COVID. Yeah, it's funny as you said that because I started reading it during the COVID crisis and it even though you set it in the far future, it feels like something that could happen two summers from now, three summers from now. It's just something where, okay, we've started working from home. We've started this whole new way of work. What happens when, because there's still the climate crisis happening as we go yeah. through COVID-19. How do we start? It, it's easier now to start reshaping the way that we live our lives. So this book felt very eerie and <laughs> I, I like to think that people, especially people who write sci-fi, have this gleam into the future that's like, okay, this is this is kind of scary. <laughs> but when you were writing it, I I wonder how much how much of it is a warning. I think it's a, I think it's a, a very great amount of it is a warning. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you're writing fiction, you have to be careful not to do that, right? You have to yes. be careful. <laughs> be preachy and say, say to your readers, no, listen here, pay attention, right? So I don't, you know, I do want it, it, people to experience it as a bit of a warning, but more than that, I want the story to carry it, the characters to carry it, for people to imagine what a world like this would be like, you know, and how simple things that we take for granted, how would they be, be managed? So that's really what I, what I want, you know, and you say it's far in the future, but that's not that far. There's lots of people alive now who will see, will see those, it, those, those times, you know. Um, all the things that happen in daylight come and all the sort of technological advances and the sort of arrangements, the things that they eat and all of that, these things have all happened somewhere in the world already. So I sort of combed the newspapers and the internet for, you know, things like 
you know, are, are we going to be able to, to make protein out of algae? You know, can we, will we be able to eat algae? Will we all end up having to eat algae if, if, if our farming breaks down? And so all of that I found as being possible. Now, of course, there's a big step between something being possible and it being the norm. So, you know, I, the, the things that are in daylight come are not the norm and they're, they may not be the norm ever or not for a long time, but they're all possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if anything, COVID is teaching us that the norm as we know it can change very rapidly. So yeah. who knows? Um, yeah. But on the topic of it being a warning, it felt for me that even though I knew, I guess also because I had the background of who you are and what you do, it felt like it was a warning. However, it didn't feel didactic at all. It didn't feel like it was trying to say X, Y, Z, take care of the environment. It, it was very much still a strong story. And how do you go about setting about that as a writer in your crafting your world and crafting what you're doing? How do you say, okay, this is the message I want, but I don't want it to feel like an advertisement? Right. You know, I don't really think about message or theme. Really? <laughs> yeah, when I'm writing it. Because to, to be honest with you, I, I really don't know what they are. Mm. I mean, for me, process, everybody, people, writers are very different, you know, and people have very different processes. And, you know, early, early in this journey, I remember somebody saying to me, there's seven rules of writing. This is a teacher. Seven rules of writing, but nobody agrees what they are. <laughs> I think that's true, right? So just as many people who can tell you, as I do, that I write early in the morning, there's just as many people who can't write a thing until it's midnight. And there are people who write every day and people who write only when they feel like it. There's all different ways to go about it. But for me, I write really to discover what I think and, and to discover what my theme might be and to discover what my message might be. I don't know it at the outset and I don't know what's going to happen either. And I think if I knew what was going to happen, I'd get bored with it because in a way it's a, it's a process of discovery for me as well. And that's what I find, that's one of the things that I find very, I don't know, sort of gripping about it, you know? So I've, I've written my character and they're up in a tree and there are wolves underneath a tree or something like that. And I have no idea how I'm going to get them out of this predicament, you know? And so I go to bed with this problem in my mind, you know, my character's in some situation and I'll try and let my subconscious come up with what the answer is. And I find all of that just very you know it really takes me over and it's what I like about writing so I don't want to know what the outset oh these are all the things that are going to happen and this is what I mean and please pay attention to my theme no <laughs> yeah so the wrong turns too you know you go down some road and you, you maybe you introduce a new character and then it just doesn't work and you have to get rid of the character and you have to get rid of that road it's it's not for me it's not a linear process at all and speaking of characters, I absolutely love Sorrel, one of my favorite characters that I've read this year. Um, could you tell me a bit about how, or tell me about the characters for people who haven't read the book yet, the characters, um, who we can expect. And I am a sucker for great women in books, obviously. <laughs> so I really appreciated this book. So you could tell us a bit about the characters and what, People who are about to pick up this book, what can they expect? Okay, so there are two main characters. Sarah is 14 years old and she lives in the capital city with her mother. 
Um, her father is in prison and she hasn't seen him in years. And he, he was taken to prison for a crime, which I won't reveal. <laughs> and her mother has a, a, an in-person job, which is a very, very privileged position to be in. And her mother is a tech person. She fixes what are called the old-time computers. And, and Sara is at home and she goes to school online and can't, as I said, can't sleep. So she convinces her mother. She has a friend, um, Sesame, who tells her that there are these people living in the hills, so-called tribals. So people who live in the old way. And they have some kind of, you know, very sort of fascistic government that you can't just decide you're going to change where you live. It's, it's all very controlled by this government called the Domins. But she convinces they, get, they, they live in this capital city and they get an evacuation order because the sea is rising and they have to now leave where they're, the house that they've been living. And this is a normal part of life in this world because the sea is rising. Mm -hmm. So the places where you can live safely are changing. So she, she convinces her mother to leave the capital city and go to the hills. And of her character, um, Sorrel, because she, she, she saw her father being taken away to prison and she has seen various acts of violence in the streets, she's, she's anti-violence, you know, she wants, to, she wants to, she's afraid of violence. She doesn't want herself to have to commit any violence. And she's afraid that what this journey is going to confront her with is that, that in order to survive, she's going to have to commit acts of violence. Mm -hmm. So that's one of her sort of motivations or one of the things that animate her. Her, her, her mother, so the story goes back and forth between Sorrel as the, as the narrator and the mother. And the mother, whose name is Bibi, she, you know, Sorrel is her only child. She really does not want to leave um, Bana to go into the hills but she doesn't, she doesn't want to die alone and she doesn't want to leave her daughter. So she goes along, she goes along with her daughter. And they, I don't want to reveal too much about the book, but they find a little journey out, out of the city and they begin this trek up into the hills to see if they're cooler temperatures. And there they meet a whole bunch of other characters um, because they do find people living in the mountains. And those two are also some strong female characters because they are, they are a group of women who are living in the hills. And they do eventually encounter the people who have actually controlled the highland and are living, you know, in better temperatures. And of course, there's, there's a conflict. And Sorrel has to figure out, well, what, what is she capable of? And mm -hmm. um, a bit about research. I'd love to know, how did you, what was the research you put in to this book um, outside of the environment, there seems to be very strong cultural identities that come out in the book. And how much of it was from your own imagination? A lot is from my own imagination. I felt very free to imagine what I wanted to, you know, because I wasn't setting it in the present. Mm -hmm. And maybe you noticed it, I imagine a post-racial world. So everybody's become wrong. <laughs> so, you know, I just, I wanted it that where the, the subject of a Caribbean book was not about race, you know, and it was not a sort of underlying, um, you know, driving force or theme or whatever. So I've imagined a post, a post-racial world and I've imagined everybody speaking in a kind of, you know, sort of with, with, with a few little sort of different words, non-English words thrown in, but a sort of standard English type of type of narrative 
um, I'm, I'm quite obsessed with the Tainos. So even though I've never written about the Tainos, the Huracan is dedicated to Jamaica's indigenous people and the title of the book is, is their word, you know? Because I, I want to know how, is there a better way for us to live on an, an island in the Caribbean Sea, you know, without causing the damage? I mean, I don't, don't want to live in a cave any more than anyone else, right? But we have to find a way that's better than how we're currently going about it. Mm -hmm. I wanted some part of this story to confront some of those questions, right? If, if, if our civilization is threatened, is it collapsing? How do we, how will we, how might we go about living? And would there be positive things about that? You know, would we actually enjoy some, some, some parts of, of that not being, not being so taken up with you know, the latest clothes and the you know, latest phone and car and all those things. What happens to lives that are stripped down to nothing at all? So um, I've done, not, not just for this book, but for other things I've been thinking about, because something I've written that I've never finished was a, a story about Jamaica as a character. So the mm -hmm. island is speaking, you know? So I've done research about how the Tainos lived and so that, there was that. And then I did a lot of research about what the climate crisis is likely to bring or could bring us you know and what kinds of technologies so it's sort of a mix of you know yes the the world has people are living in a, in very uncertain ways but there's also technology that's helping them you know um the computer call a plaque that they have is something very advanced so it's this kind of mix of a technological society and one that's very basic and i did a lot of research about those kinds of things what was possible and not possible and what you know i didn't want to make it so I want people to think my child could see this world. Yes. Okay. My next question was about influences because you, it created such a very rich world for me and a very deep world that I'm, I'm impressed falls in so few pages because I felt really immersed into the world that you've created. Um, and this is your first sci-fi book, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, because I was like, I don't remember you writing one before. No. This is the first time I've tried anything like this. First, I would say complete work of my imagination. So none of this happened to me. No aspect of it ever happened to me. Whereas if you look at the other books, some aspect happened to me. Yeah. Well, it's beautiful. It's an amazing world. And I was just curious about whether you had any influences, any, or is it just oh, I, I want to create this world and you did it. I am not a big, I was not a big reader of speculative fiction before trying to write this book. And I, sometimes I wonder if that was a mistake or if it was a, if it was a benefit, right? So I didn't come to it with a lot of preconceived ideas about what was allowed and what was not allowed or who had done what before, that kind of thing, you know? And, and since writing Daylight Home, I have read um, you know, I've read Octavia Butler, I've read N.K. Jemisin. Um, so I've read much more speculative fiction than I ever did in the past. I mean, I, I have read Game of Thrones, um, Tolkien's books, you know, Watership Down, that kind of thing. But a lot of high fantasy. But yeah, high fantasy type stuff. So I, I you know, yeah, I don't think I had a real strong influence on the speculative fiction side before writing the book. I mean, now that I've read 
um, N.K. Jemison and Octavia Butler. I think they're both absolutely amazing. And, mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, mind blowing, as you say, um, especially um, N.K.'s fifth season, that, that oh. trilogy. We're um, reading that this month. Are you really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that really just completely grabbed me and, and, and wouldn't let me go, you know. And of course, I liked it that the, that the earth was fighting back. So, yeah. I mean, more generally, influences. Um, the first the first book I read that, so, so I'm of an age that we didn't do much Caribbean literature in school, you know. And the first book I remember reading that the Caribbean leapt off the pages was via Snapple's also Mr. Biswas, which is an A-level book, you know. And so I read a lot of him when I was young. And then I read Olive Senior's collection, Summer Lightning. And that, I think, that if I was to point to one book, one writer and one book that was a real strong influence for me, it would be Olive. Because that's a little skinny book. You know, when you, when you think yes. you want to write books, <laughs> you have to write, you know, all these pages and it's going to take years and how are you going to do it? It's going to be a trilogy. And, yeah. gonna be... and that's daunting, right? <laughs> yeah. But Olive's little skinny book with these amazing stories, you know, I, I mean, I still have a copy that I had when I was probably, I don't know, 17 or something. Wow. So she, she's been a big, big influence. Um, sort of people writing now, there's so much amazing fiction coming out of yeah. the Caribbean now, you know. Um, I loved, have you read um, The Golden Child, Claire Adams' book? No, Child. I haven't. That's 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 amazing. Um, Ingrid Prasad's Love After Love. After love. It, I love it. <laughs> and I know you guys have done Leonie Ross's... Um, Come Let Us Sing Anyway. Let Us Sing Anyway. And she, of course, has a, a, a book coming out with a big publisher mm -hmm. early next year. And Jacob um, Ross, who actually edited yeah. Daylight Come, I've read his his two in his trilogy, and, and his I've only read the first one, so I need. Yeah, to I actually that. like the second one better. I so I've heard, yeah. Falling, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think he's got into his stride, you know. Yeah. And then Kai Miller, you know, I think Kai's poetry. I mean, I love his his novels as well, but his cartographer. I just think is one of the most amazing amazing things. collections yeah, yeah i've i've read and i love kai's nonfiction as well mm -hmm. so i, I think all the time that kai is what really got me into caribbean fiction and from then it's just everything is just opened mm -hmm. up for me yeah. so i i think what i'm really happy about with daylight come especially since it's your first sci-fi book is we're seeing not just great caribbean fiction coming up but a big diverse range of Caribbean fiction. So we have Jacob Ross coming out with crime. We have more sci-fi coming out. So it's not just you have to write big L literary fiction anymore. You're able to, <laughs> you know, explore and be experimental. So I'm really happy that I'm happy this book exists and I'm really excited for more people to start reading it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I'm glad you Yeah. Uh, I, I was just going to ask you to do a reading from it. Okay. Um, you can read whatever parts you like. Okay. So I will read you a little bit from when, when Sorrel and her mother are just thinking about, well, they're beginning to plan now to leave the city. So they're thinking about what will they need, how much can they carry, you know, um, how will they find their way, that kind of thing. So they're still in, this, still in the city. And they're talking about what to take, right? 
So this is Bibi starts talking. Pack the sunscreen, Bibi said, coming out of the bedroom, running, rubbing her eyes. Why? Are you going to give orders the whole time? You might be able to go outside in the mountains because it's cooler, but there'll be UV rays to think about. Maybe there'll be trees, but we'll still be in danger from dappling. Pack it. It's toxic. Toxicity takes years. Sorrel shrugged and added the sunscreen to the pile. Two sports, two cups. What's that pile for, mother asked. Things to trade, Sorrel said. We need to carry as little as possible. We'll have the plaque if it comes to that. The plaque is our computer. I'm not giving up the plaque, Sorrel said. She glanced at her mother, the skin loosening at her neck and hands, her face freckled and marked by sun damage from before the convergence. Bibia told her that then some people lived past 80 because of good food, eight hours of sleep most nights and antibiotics. Maybe I should leave her, she thought. Maybe I'd have a better chance on my own. You and me against the world, her mother used to say. When, did, when do we attack? Sorrel would reply and they would laugh. They hadn't played that game in ages. Their eyes met. Bibi looked weepy and sore. I'll be fine, she said. You're only 14. You can't go alone. Sorrel shrugged. The old aqueduct comes out right by Guapa. That's a two-hour walk from here. Do we need a weapon? We need a knife for digging and reaping whatever we find to eat. Two would be better. Wrap the sharpest ones we have. Maybe the knife would be needed for something else. Sorrel tried to imagine killing someone who stood in their way, stabbing them, feeling the knife go in, warm blood on her hand, hearing their screams. Man or woman, would they leave the body outside for the pharaohs? Would she kill another person? She was nine when the Domins had kicked down their front door and taken her father. It had been at dusk, just as Sorrel was waking. Her mother was in the bathroom. Don't come out, Bee. Hide, Sorrel, her father had shouted. She had crawled under the bed and heard the beating, her father's grunts and cries trailing off into silence. The Domins had taken him away by the time they emerged from hiding, and she was left to imagine what the beating had done to his body. A crumpled piece of paper lay on the kitchen table, and Bibi had read it out loud, tears sliding down her cheeks. The whole Skynot tree, she whispered. Not a first offense. It was a stupid, despairing act to cut down the tree with nuts still on it. A year later, Sorrel had watched from the window as two males killed an old woman on the street. As with her father's arrest, it was dusk and she had just got out of bed. She'd opened a window and saw an old woman carrying a basket of old-time custard apples, probably on her way to one of the illegal pop-up markets. No one liked old people. They ate, got sick, didn't work, and were burdens on the young. Besides, they were the cause of the convergence. It was not exactly legal to kill them, but even at 10, she knew people looked the other way. The two young males on the other side of the road were wearing the squad badge of violence trainees. People avoided the violence-trained men, but the old woman did not notice them until they began to cross the road. She looked around, searching for help or escape, and then stood still. Laughing, the males took her basket away. The taller man slapped her as if he were conducting an experiment. When she fell, the other man kicked her once, twice. The old woman folded her arms over her head, offering no resistance. We should rape her, the taller man said, biting into a custard apple. What for? She's dried up like dead coral. 
They took up rocks from the side of the road and took turns smashing her head until it wasn't hard anymore. They wiped their hands on the old woman's clothes and walked away, eating the custard apples. A few minutes later, Sarl had heard the howls of feral canines and shut the window. In the morning, the old woman's body was gone. She never told anyone what she had seen. You're daydreaming again, Bibby said, staring at the black. Pack some string and rope. Wrap it around your waist. How many knives do we have? One good one, an old paring knife, but it's dull. Pack them anyway. Come look at this. Looks like an old water tank before the climb gets really steep, about a third of the way up. So what? Means there used to be water there. Maybe it's where that dry stream will take us. Maybe it's shelter. So thank you so much. And I'm sure everyone who's heard that is just dying to get their hands on the rest of the story because it feels like such a familiar world, yet it's very eerie turn to it. So thank you so much. And if you need to order the book, you can order it directly from the publishers at PayPal Tree, or you can order it at rebelwomenlit.com. And we'll probably put something nice in the orders for you. So get Daylight Come. It's coming out September 24th, 2020. And by now, I'm sure you're opening a new tab to go order that book. So Diana, thank you so much for talking with us today. Shireen, thank you for having me. It was great. You were a really good interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much. Hopefully we can have you on again once everyone has read it and they've sent in your questions. So thank you so much. And where can people find you online if they want to act you to be like, Diana, how dare you? How could you do this? And when <laughs> is the next book coming out? <laughs> yeah. So I'm on um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My Twitter handle is just dmacaulay. Um, Instagram is Diana Macaulay and Facebook is Diana Macaulay too. Easy to find. And I'm trying to use the three of them more than I used to. So. I've noticed that you're beefing up your Instagram usage. Yeah. But my, son, my son said to me, listen, you've just got to do better. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> all right. We'll try to help you out as well. So thank, thank you. Because I look at all the likes and when I see a like, I think, yes, okay, that, I did good. Yay. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Hi, Thank you. Too. Okay. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye.